0: Right. Before you sit down, think of something that you're thankful for that starts with the letter L and then tell somebody around you, and then you can sit down. Hmm? That's a good one. <laughs> Also wanted to mention that this Sunday after Second Service, the marriage ministry is going to have a meeting of people that want to help out in some way in that ministry. So if you come to Second Service, hang around afterwards here in the here in the main auditorium and they're going to meet to see if people want to help them do different things. This Saturday, remember the men's ministry meets at 8 and... Also, there's a drug and alcohol seminar at Calvary Costa Mesa. We have flyers out in the foyer about that, if you'd be interested in that. And on Saturday afternoon at 4 o'clock over at the Bailey's, a kind of a send-off potluck for Gene and Julie Rivera, who are heading to the mission field on Monday. So Sunday we'll have a chance to pray for them as a group as well, and we're excited to see what God's going to do in their lives. It's, it's always great when when some of your own people go out and and God uses them and you get to feel like you're really a part of it and it feels really personal and so we're excited about what God's going to do in their lives. Turn in your Bibles over to Matthew chapter 5. Working our way through the book of Matthew and the Sermon on the Mount will be one of the slower places that we will go. It's only three chapters but it'll take us a At least three weeks to cover it, perhaps more. Sermon on the Mount is this message that Jesus gave to his disciples in response to looking at the multitudes. It says in the beginning of chapter five that he looked at the multitudes and then he called his disciples aside. And it's basically the message that he was presenting to them about his kingdom what it means for him to reign, what it means to do things his way. And Through explaining this and setting these kinds of standards that he sets, he also gives us a lot of help in understanding the purpose of the law in the Old Testament and God's perspective on the law. See, the law had been given, rules were given in order to demonstrate to the people their inability to follow them. Paul talks about this in Romans that even people who don't know God, they can't even live by their own standards that they set, much less standards that God would set. And so the law was given so that the people would realize, oh man, we need help. And yet, as is so often the case, people look at rules and given enough time, they have a way of putting a spin on them so that they come out looking pretty good. We all have a tendency that when we look at the commandments of God, when we look at the righteous requirements of the law, we look at God's standards, so often we can spin them just enough that we use the law as basically an opportunity to see how bad everyone else is compared to us. We begin to grade on the curve. We start to become self-righteous, and then that which was intended to convict instead causes us to swell up with pride and and to look down at others. And so the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus' addressing of these disciples who had grown up in in a Jewish environment with the law around people who claimed to obey the law, people who said they were righteous. And Jesus was pointing out to them, number one, you're not. You you fail. We all fail. And so he digs down beneath the requirements and rather than put a spin on the law so that it's easy to justify myself, he gets to the heart of the matter and shows that righteousness is something that's of the heart and it's something that we can't work up on our own. It's something that we can't do for ourselves. And so we saw last week as he went through the Beatitudes, these, these attitudes, these responses, these character traits, really, that demonstrate from the heart the life of a person who understands who God is and is responding to him in the way that he wants them to, the the humility that comes from that, the mercy and grace that come forth from that, and so on. We looked at the passage that talks about being salt and light and how we're here to affect the world. We're not here to be isolated from the world. We're actually here to infiltrate the world. If we weren't here to affect the world, then it would be best if when we got saved, we just instantly got raptured, and that would be pretty cool. I don't know how many people would come forward and get saved. If you come forward, you disappear, and nobody knows where you are, but I think a lot of times that's kind of the way we think of it. We think, well, okay, I'm a Christian now. Now let's just wait until the Lord comes back. And I'm waiting for the Lord to come back, and I I hope he does it tonight. I'd be more than happy to miss my own study to go to be with the Lord. But on the other hand, the fact that we're still here, we understand there are things that God wants to do yet through us. And primarily what those things are, other than just developing our character and things like that, really it's to give us a chance to affect the world. And rather than just huddle up as Christians, we need to intentionally reach out to the lost, to find ways to build bridges, to make associations with people who need to hear the truth of Jesus Christ. I find personally that the longer I'm a Christian, the harder it is for me to make those bridges, to build those opportunities to reach, to be the salt and the light, to, to demonstrate. It says that Let your light shine so that people will see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. That is, people see you, they see that you really care about them, and it causes, it makes God look good. And when I was a new Christian, that was easy. Because first of all, there was a radical change in my life, and everyone realized it. Nowadays, the changes are more subtle. But secondly, I was around nothing but pagans when I came to the Lord, and so I had those natural associations, but over time, I know for me, right away, I lost most of my non-Christian friends because I wasn't doing drugs anymore. They were suspecting that I was a narc now, and just kind of naturally, you just don't fit in in those environments, and oh well. But still, there are involvements and activities, but sometimes for many of us, as Maybe we work around Christians and, or maybe we don't work and, and we have other activities and all of our life focuses around Christians. We miss out on that opportunity to be what God has called us to be. And we need to intentionally find ways to do that, excuses to do that you know perhaps i know for me personally i'm a chaplain for a couple police departments and it's a big burden on me to do it in a way but it gives me a chance to sit there with somebody that doesn't know the lord and they know that i'm a pastor So they're already going to expect some sort of spiritual talk, and it gives me some opportunities to share the Lord with people who are far from the Lord. I try to find other ways of doing that as well. I try to find ways to reach out to the community, and and so some people do it through coaching sports. I know Pastor Rick is coaching his kids' basketball team, and things like that just give you an opportunity to realize, I can make a difference. I can, I can touch people who don't know. And, and so that's what he's saying. This is what it's all about. It's building these bridges. It's being salt and it's being light. But then he goes on to talk about, and we, we looked at this last week, Christ fulfilling the law. He said, I didn't come to do away with the law. I came to fulfill it. I came to demonstrate for people what the law is really all about. And it's not about forming holy clubs. It's not about just you know, being isolated from the world but he said you have a problem with the law and that is if you violate even one instance of the law you're guilty of the whole law and he said if you your righteousness even if you're as righteous as the most righteous pharisee that's not enough you've got a righteousness problem and on the one, and he says that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the Pharisees. And, and the word that he uses therefore, exceed is something that's just, it, it's overflowing in a way that's more and more. I mean, he, he's making it very clear, you've got to go way past Pharisees. Now, that causes for me two responses in my life. It causes me to go, oh no. How can, if, it's, if I have to be a lot more righteous than a Pharisee, How in the world can I ever measure up? But shortly after that realization, I realized all the pressure's off because I can't even come close. So I understand it's not about about me being righteous. It's not about about me doing the right things. That's never going to earn me any status with God. I am always going to come up short. And there's there's a good feeling there's a bad feeling to not being able to do what you'd love to be able to do. If if there was someone who was here tonight and they said, you know, I am going to lose my house unless somebody in here can give me $20. Now, if someone was saying that and we really believed them, many of us, most of us, have $20 in our pocket. And if we if we hung on to the $20 rightfully, we would feel like, man, I mean, I could... 20 bucks, I could do it. But on the other hand, if there was someone here who said, I'm going to lose my house unless I can come up with $20 million. It's a big house. <laughs> I, for me, I, you know, the $20 one would be pretty easy. I'd just give them $20. If it was like $1,000 and I happened to have it, ooh. But if it's $20 million, you know, not even for a second do I think I ought to help this guy. <laughs> There's no way. And that should be our response to the law when we realize we're so far off from keeping it that the pressure's off of us. It's not about us at all. And yet, it's something that God wants to do in our lives. By fulfilling the law, he wants to give his righteousness to us. And through his work, through his righteousness that he imputes to us, he can give us the righteousness that we need. He can hand it to us. He passes it off for us, to us, in us all over us. And and so Jesus is basically driving the point home and saying, if you don't get this, understand you can't do it. It's about me. You can't be this righteous, but you need to be. So how about asking me for a suggestion? But again, in case people miss the point, and they almost always do when you study the law, when you study rules, there are always some people who think, yeah, that's me. That's pretty good. No matter how ridiculously high you set the standard, there are going to be some people who say, yeah, I measure up. And so again, Jesus starts to zoom in now, beginning with verse 21, on specifically just a couple of the commandments of the Ten Commandments. And he explains what God's standard, the standard of his kingdom, really is in light of these. And he picks the commandments that probably you might feel the best about. You know, you, I mean, some of the commandments don't covet and don't steal. and Oh, man, you know, those. there are ways in which we're really busted. But, but, he, but first he goes with murder. Because most people, if they want to say they're righteous, well, at least there's one of the commandments I haven't done. But Jesus says, no, let's take the worst one right now and let's get to the heart of it. And let's see whether or not you've really done it or not. And so, verse 21 says, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. But I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And whoever says to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council, but whoever says you fool shall be in danger of hellfire. So he says, it's not just killing somebody that's a violation of the commandments of God, the righteous standards of God. He says, actually, you know, yeah, whoever murders is in danger of judgment, but I say to you, if you're angry with your brother, that phrase without cause, it's in many of the Greek manuscripts. It isn't in some of them. Uh, And so a lot of versions of the Bible will leave that out. Personally, I believe that it should be there. I think they cut it out because they thought it was smoother without it what the word there means is just in an empty way in a it, the idea is being angry without any productivity attached to it now he's not saying anytime you get angry you're 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 damned you're a murderer that's just it there are there is a time to be angry there are times to be angry and there are appropriate ways to to manifest anger. And Paul said, be angry and sin not. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. So we know that there are appropriate ways. Jesus at times certainly seemed to be angry when he tipped over the money changers, temples, and other times. But what he's saying is, if in your heart your attitude toward your brother is that of one who would ultimately, that anger would grow to a point of violence, then understand this, that seed that starts in your heart, that's where the violation starts. That's where the sin starts. That's where the problem comes in right off the bat. And so what he's saying is we all share a lot of the characteristics that we have in common with murderers. It's just that murderers don't know when to stop. Or sometimes you don't have a means to do the murder. You might get mad at someone in traffic, but you really don't have a way to hurt them, and so they just go their way. Maybe they're bigger than you are, or they're driving a big SUV, and you're in a little Jetta or something, and so it's like, man, if I was in a tractor, I'd sure run them over. Well, that's the same kind of thing, And, and personally, interpersonally, it's that way. If we're getting angry at others, he's saying, that's the same sin. That's happening in your heart. Murder doesn't start when the person dies. Sometimes someone assaults someone or injures someone intentionally, and they have to wait and wait and wait because maybe the person is in a coma, and they have to wait to see if they're going to actually be guilty of murder or not until the person actually dies. But Jesus is saying, no, you have that same problem. If you don't control your anger, if you don't respond to your anger in an appropriate way, That's the same thing. How dare you look down your nose at someone else just because they took it a little further than you did. And yet, within your heart, if you're angry like that, if you're having a problem with controlling your response to what other people are doing, you have something in common with them. And you need to understand that even that much of a violation is enough to condemn you. And, you know, he says... uh, whoever says to his brother raka that's a word it's an aramaic and syriac word that that just means empty it's really the equivalent to saying you airhead but they would use that term it was a term of uh, it was a real put down that they would use to mean you're nothing you're empty you're vain you're you don't matter at all and he's saying If you're treating people, if you're saying things to them that make them feel like they're just nothing, they're less than nothing, they're a non-entity, I think personally it could just even apply when we ignore people that we shouldn't ignore, when we just don't notice people, when we don't care about them. And this is something that we're all going to struggle with. We get caught up in our own thing, and, and sometimes we just treat people like they aren't even there because maybe they can't help us or whatever. But Jesus is saying, look, when you do that, you're in, you're, uh, you'll be in danger of the council going before the Sanhedrin. You ought to be dragged into court, not just the murders, but the people who treat people like they're empty, like they're nothing, call them names. Whoever says, you fool, shall be in danger of hellfire. He's saying, you're calling somebody stupid, you're putting someone down, saying, you're an idiot, you're a moron that's the kind of thing that sends people to hell. That's the kind of people that sends people into eternal torment. To, the word here is Gehenna. And, and so what he's doing is he's drawing a picture and saying, don't you dare think that because you haven't killed someone that this makes you okay. When what you may be doing is killing people with your words, or with your looks, or with your anger... You know, when you were a kid, I'm sure your parents told you, "Sticks and stones will break my bones, but words will never hurt me." That's such a lie. Words will hurt you way worse than sticks or stones. I've been hit with lots of sticks and stones, fists, feet, everything else. The the, the worst injuries I've ever had weren't from any of those. weren't You know, and I've had broken bones and things like that from that sort of thing, but I'll tell you something, when someone says something that's hurtful or when someone treats me like I don't matter or like I'm an idiot, it hurts a lot longer, way after other injuries will heal. What you say kills, and Jesus is acknowledging that and saying, you need to value other people. If you don't, you're committing the same sin as a murder. He's just doing it a little better than you are. He's just finishing the job, that's all. But in your heart, you're beginning with the same source problem. That is that you're not valuing people. And he goes on to say, therefore, as a result of that, if you bring your gift to the altar and there, remember that your brother has something against you. Leave your gift there before the altar and go your way. First, be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. So he says, if you're coming to worship God, you're bringing a sacrifice, and you're feeling just really spiritual right now, and all of a sudden you realize, you know, there's somebody, my brother, that doesn't just mean brother biologically, it's referring to a neighbor, anyone who's close to you. You know, I've done something that's offensive to them, and I haven't made it right. Jesus is saying, don't go do your offering to God. Better for you to walk away, leave your sacrifice there, and go make things right with your brother. Because the God that you're sacrificing to is the one who values them so much that he sent his son to die for them. And so if all of a sudden a light clicks on and you go, I wasn't very nice to that person, they have a reason to be bugged at me. I understand how I offended them. He said, forget your sacrifice, go make things right with your brother. And I think that, you know, if we go to open our Bibles or we come to church or we sit down to pray or there's a, there's a you know, a church function that we have that we want to go to. Or a, and if we realize, you know, God's been telling me that there's a person that I've offended. It's better to miss whatever it is that function is and go make things right with God. That's what he's saying. And then he says, agree with your adversary quickly. While you are on the way with him, lest your adversary deliver you to the judge. The judge hand you over to the officer, and you be thrown into prison. Assuredly, I say to you, you will by no means get out of there till you have paid the last penny." Here, in this same context of getting along with people, he says, when you find yourself at odds with another person, be reasonable about it. Settle out of court. Be willing to give up. Don't fight for your own rights. Don't don't feel like "Um, it's a matter of principle and I'm going to do it now. If it really is a matter of principle, then that's something else entirely. We should never compromise in matters that are genuinely matters of principle. But one thing I've found over the years is that it's amazing how many times when I get in the flesh that I think it's a principle, some great principle that's at stake. And really the principle is I wanna win. And we need to really check ourselves and go, if there's a problem with someone, if it doesn't matter, if it's not a big deal, give in. What difference does it make? Make your peace. Do you wanna end up going to court and fighting? And you... I had a friend who was the president of the Orange County Bar Association, really an incredible attorney. But he told me, he said, people have such illusions about the justice system. And he said, If I know I'm right and I have the most solid case I could ever have and I walk into a courtroom with 12 jurors, he said, I probably have a 50-50 chance of winning the case. Now that's someone who was a judge, who is a great attorney, he's gone to be with the Lord. Now that was his opinion. He's not someone, it's easy to take shots at the legal profession when you're not one, but he is. The fact is, usually you go to court, everyone loses. And the same thing goes for if you maintain some sort of a dispute with people. What Jesus is saying is just work it out if you possibly can. Again, in the context of not wanting to hurt other people, not wanting to end up killing someone when you don't have to, not allowing your anger to dictate what your relationship is going to be, work it out for crying out loud. He's just going... Just, you can do it. If you go to court, if you, if you carry this thing on to its conclusion, everyone's going to lose. Everyone's going to come up short. So he's going, try to work it out with people while you're on the way, before you get to the point where there's so much at stake, where you have so much to battle for. Work it out. Do that. I have found the older I get, the more willing I am to give up in a fight. You know, there are times when somebody comes in just armed for bear with me about something, and they may be mad about something that I've said or done, and you know, I used to, when I was younger, boy, I'd defend myself to the death. I had my case laid out, I would, you know, I'd always win. But what I found out, I didn't lose many arguments, but I lost a lot of people over the years, people that ended up going away feeling like dirt, feeling like I put them in their place, you know, and, and I've learned rather than that, just, hey, if somebody comes to you and says, you're this and this and this and this, I just go, yeah, you know, you're probably right. I wasn't trying to, but you're right. I don't want to do that again. Will you forgive me? And it completely disarms them. It takes away their, all of a sudden, then they're saying, well, you weren't completely wrong. I understand what, all of a sudden they're arguing your case because see, they're, they're already, they're coming and they want to fight. So they've already thought up all their arguments, and they've already thought up most of yours, too, because they need to counter them. So you take away their arguments against you. Next thing you know, they're taking your side, arguing for you. It's funny how it works that way. And Jesus was saying that. He said, you know, the quality of heart that says, you know, as well as much as is possible with you be at peace with all men. Just work it out. Be willing to be flexible. Be willing to give in. Don't feel like you always have to be right. You might be right, but there are some people that aren't ready to hear it. It's okay. You don't have to go around and correct everyone who has something wrong with them. I remember an old guy. He's gone to be with the Lord since, but he was at Calvary, and he was a, just a neat guy, but he had this thing like any time he saw someone who he thought was a little overweight, he had to go lecture them. And he had all these scriptures, and he had all this stuff. And I I watched him just really hurt people. And usually they'd start lashing out back at him and saying things about him, but other times they just walked away hurt. Most of the time what he was saying was probably right, but he wasn't winning friends, he wasn't winning people that way. And God hasn't put any of us here on the earth to go around and correct everyone who's wrong, to catch every mistake. Boy, I because of all the years that I've been in education, it's something that I really fight. If, for instance, if I'm sitting there worshiping God and, and a name is a word is spelled wrong up on the like week instead of week today, it's like I'm completely out of it for five minutes. I miss the next song because I'm like, what? Well, it's W E A K. Come on, and Anne used to say that when she wrote me love letters, I would correct the spelling and send it back to her. That's just. I tend to be a critical person. And that's so foolish. You could be right, but you're going to be wrong. You could be right, but you're going to miss what, what God has for you because you think that everyone wants you to correct them. They usually don't. If they want to, they'll ask you. And anyway, so he just says look, you have a problem with somebody, work it out, settle out of court try to come to some sort of an agreement. Don't think that you being right is a principle that's worth fighting over. Find what principles are worth fighting for and then anything else doesn't really matter. Just let go of it. It's no big deal even if they take even if and I've had times when I go to somebody and really I think I was pretty right. I think I was 90% right in a situation, but they're upset and they're bugged at me and I go to them and I just humble myself and I just go, you know, you're absolutely right. I I messed up. It's my fault. And I'm being sincere in saying that because I think that 10%, really, if I hadn't done it, it probably could have prevented this whole thing. But then I kind of expect them to go, hey, you know, bro, it's okay. And, but instead, I've had some of them start to lecture me. Yeah, you shouldn't make that kind of mistake again, man, because, and you feel like going, wait a minute. <laughs> Jesus is going, that stuff's not worth it anger what does it happen it's unhealthy it eats away at you it makes you a bitter person ultimately you could be killing somebody you might even be killing yourself because of the way that you're responding to a situation that could have been fixed that could have been helped could have been dealt with and so I used to used to know a guy who his motto was I give ulcers I don't get them But really what Jesus is saying, don't get them, don't give them. It's okay. There's almost always a way to make peace with people, even your adversaries. So then he says, uh, now we come in verse 27 here, to his response on, on the seventh commandment, adultery. He said, you've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not commit adultery. Now, for a lot of people, hopefully most people, Say, I haven't murdered. I'm pretty safe. Then you start going through the other commandments. The next one that hopefully a lot of us haven't done is adultery. And now Jesus takes that commandment and he says, wait a minute. Don't be so fast to think that you're not an adulterer, that you aren't that kind of person. For you to point your finger at someone else, for you to paint the scarlet letter on them because of what they've done. And he begins to say what adultery really is. You've heard it was said of the, to those of old, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you, for it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you, for it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. This statement, adultery in the heart, is the statement, if you're old enough to remember when Jimmy Carter was running for president, got him into a lot of trouble. He was a Christian, a born-again Christian. He's running for president, and he was interviewed by Playboy magazine. And they ask him, have you ever committed adultery? Have you ever cheated on your wife? And Jimmy Carter said, you know, Jesus said that if you've looked after a woman to lust after, then you've committed adultery in your heart. And so That being the case, I would have to say yes, I have. That's a totally right-on biblical answer, but he got torn up over it. He, people started. uh, The Christians got really mad at him for saying that. Even the non-Christians were treating him like he's some kind of a pervert because he said that he had looked after women to lust after, and that's exactly the way self-righteous, legalistic people look at the law. They, there are a lot. And if I ask in this room of all the guys. If I said, raise your hand if you've looked after a woman to lust after her, commit adultery in your heart, there are a bunch of guys in here who wouldn't raise their hands, and they're liars. But see, that's why Jesus is saying this. He's, he's gone, look, don't you look down your nose at other people, don't you understand this is where it starts? James talks about when lust is conceived and it brings forth sin and how temptation works in our lives in that way. And Jesus is saying the same thing. And he's saying, no, understand this, unfaithfulness is not just as our recent president had said, well, as long as you don't go all the way, it's not considered adultery. Jesus would laugh at that. He would say, all the way. As long as you allow that thought in your mind, as long as you entertain that fantasy, as long as you will look at that uncleanness, hey, you're just like everybody else, you need a savior. You need someone who can deliver you from this flesh. And and so as, as he points this out, he says, if you want to point your finger at people for adultery, then point your finger back at yourself if you've ever lusted. If you've ever looked at something that you didn't have and thought, I wonder what that would be like. He said, it's the same deal. Now that isn't to say, and don't get me wrong here, it's not to say that You know, looking at someone or having sex with them, it's the same thing. It's all adultery. So if you look, you might as well go for it because you already committed adultery. That's not what he's saying. But this is from a perspective of those people who want God's standards in their lives, who want to remain pure. And he's saying what you have to do is draw the line, not at the bed, not at that act. But you need to draw the line way back where you don't allow yourself to entertain thoughts. Where you don't allow yourself to take that second look. Where when that comes in one ear, you make sure it goes out the other ear. You make sure that when you look and you see something, that you look away. Because that's where it all starts. And that's the problem that's there. And if you've never been unfaithful, if, you've, if you go to your death as a virgin, but you have that that battle of the flesh within your mind you can't think that you're righteous you can't think that you don't need a savior that you don't need a redeemer and the fact that we all struggle and I you know I pick on men because I am one women have the same struggle and they have other struggles as well but the fact is we all need help and that's what he's trying to say now, it's kind of ironic because in just a moment he's going to talk about marriage and adultery and divorce and all that. And I'm amazed at how many people take this passage that's coming up and beat people over the head about, you know, the, the you know, whether divorce is permissible and all this kind of, and arguing over what's adultery and all that stuff. That may be true, but that's not what Jesus is trying to teach. Because the fact is, if somebody is saying, is going to make a big case, a big deal, and say, you know, if somebody commits adultery, then you have the right to get out of the marriage. Then you ought to get out of the marriage. Or until they do that, you shouldn't. Well, then back up a couple verses and we find out that as far as Jesus is defining in the same context, we're talking about character here and we're talking about something that we're all guilty of. And so the fact is probably everyone has grounds for divorce if that's the game you want to play. But Jesus isn't leaving it at that because as he gets to the end of the chapter he says be perfect as your father is perfect. He's not teaching these things so that you'll find out what you have permission to do and whether or not you have an out or or an excuse or a spin. What he's saying is this kingdom of God is something that is in your heart. And he's not saying so go ahead and do this sin. What he's saying is understand this. We're all in trouble. We need to depend on God on a daily basis. And none of us has the right, and he goes on later to talk about judging, none of us have the right to look at someone else and not at the same time look at ourselves and realize and say and learn from Jesus himself to say, you know, not only can I understand how someone could do that, but, you know, in some ways I've shared in that same kind of guilt. I've participated in that same sort of character flaw That leads one person to destroy their family, but for me, it just rots away at my mind, or it just plagues me in my heart. And Jesus is going, you know, I have the solution to all of this, but it starts with you realizing this is what it's all about. And so he's saying, it's a lot more than just something that's of the flesh. This is something that starts in the heart and in the mind. By the And then when he, when he says, if your right eye causes you to sin, or in other versions, offend thee, cut it out, the word there, scandalon, refers to, it's an offense, it's the same word that we get scandal from, the idea, this is doing you some damage, it's scandalizing you, it's also the same word that we get the word slander from. And so what he's saying is, okay, we have this standard for righteousness that starts in the heart, that starts in the head, that comes from the eye. Now, understand this. If there is something that's causing you to be scandalized, get rid of it. Now, he's not saying literally. And, you know, there was a guy, there have been several guys, but I've met one personally who was having a problem with, some of the lusts of the flesh, and he read this passage, and so he plucked his eye out because his eye was offending him. He cut his hand off, tried to pluck his other eye out, and he passed out before it happened. And that's not what he's saying. That's not what Jesus is saying. Because you know what? If You, you could talk to blind people, and they'll tell you this. Plucking your eye out is not going to keep you from lusting. Cutting your hand off is not going to keep you from lusting. What Jesus is saying is, Anything that is causing you to scandalize your own life, anything that is getting in the way of what God wants to do in your life, it's way better to get rid of it than to have that thing drag you down. And if, you're, if there are certain movies that are really just plaguing you, well, you're better off just not going to the movies. You're better off not having a television. You're better off not listening to music. You're better off not going to concerts or being at the beach or going to the store if your problem is lusting after things. He's saying, look, don't let something get in the way of where God wants to take you. Because it will scandalize you. It will destroy you. It will bring you down. And so he's saying, be ready, be willing to get rid of anything. That stands in the way of the character that God wants to develop in your life, really is what he's saying. Now, again, after that little detour, but still in the context of adultery, he says, verse 31 Furthermore, it has been said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. Now, this is. This comes from Deuteronomy chapter 24 where the divorce laws were were expressed there and and basically divorce as Moses introduced it to the children of Israel as God led him to was because in those days they would just throw you out if they didn't like you. The way to get a divorce before before God revealed this to the children of Israel was you could say I divorce you, I divorce you, I divorce you, say it 3 times and you're out. And and to this day, there are cultures, Bedouin cultures, that all a guy has to say to one of his wives is, get out of my tent, get out of my tent, get out of my tent, and you are gone. And so God said, no, that's not right. If you're going to divorce somebody, you need to do it legitimately. You need to go through this legal procedure that would give her certain rights and so on. And, And yet Jesus is saying, okay, that was what you said. That was what the law said. But I say to you that whoever divorces his wife for any reason except sexual immorality causes her to commit adultery, and whoever marries a woman who is divorced commits adultery." Now, the first part, this is the one we hear about all the time. You know, If you divorce your wife except for sexual immorality, then you're committing adultery. But the second part is the part that's a lot more puzzling. Because, I mean, check it out. If you divorce your wife for any other reason, it causes her to commit adultery. And whoever marries a woman who is divorced commits adultery. So you look at it and you go, wait a minute. Okay, I can see that if you dump your wife and you don't have biblical grounds, then you're an adulterer if you go join with somebody else. But how are you making her an adulterer even before she gets married? She's an adulterer because of you dumping her? And then some poor innocent guy comes along and marries her, then they're an adulterer too. And a lot of people have become really, they trip out on this and they look at it and and either try to make sense of it, try to understand it, or they build a legal system that's somehow built around it. Now, whatever this does mean, it obviously doesn't mean that somebody can make you a sinner by what they do. I mean, this, however we make sense of this passage, it does not say that if I divorce you, now you're an adulterer, even if you don't even have relations with anyone. It's just common sense that that's not the case. One person can't make another person sin. They choose to do it themselves. The whole Bible teaches that. So what does it mean? Well, basically what it's saying is, and, and the word here for adultery Well, we use the word um, adulterate. It means to destroy, it means to cheapen, to corrupt, and things like that. And and moikao is the word here. But what he's saying is, understand this. You can say, okay, under the law, there are divorce laws, and so here, I'll do the paperwork, I'll pay the support, you're divorced. But he's saying, understand this. You can't just do a divorce... When you do doing a divorce, you're making someone else divorced also. You're causing them to be affected by the whole relationship. And then even later, when, if they find someone else and they marry them, which certainly under the law wasn't forbidden, he says they're affected as well. Really what he's trying to say is this, this divorce, this adulterating, this destruction. When you involve yourself in it, you're affecting a lot more people than just yourself. You can't just say, you know, this isn't, and you hear people say this all the time, oh, this isn't about you, this is just about me. Yeah, but... If you divorce me, it's about me, it's about everyone I know, it's about the friends that have to put up with my crying about it, it's about you know, the, my family that has to support me, it's about the person that I meet later who now I snap at them because I'm, I have this baggage from being divorced. It's, it corrupts everything around. Now I, I should point out to you that the whole idea there of sexual immorality, scholars don't agree as to exactly what the biblical grounds for divorce even was. Um, probably the most common among theologians is the idea that if you married someone and then you found out they had misrepresented themselves as a virgin and you found out they weren't. But the most popular definition of this is generally just, hey, if a person is... is." Uh, you know, unfaithful, then that is grounds for divorce. Um, the word there, pornaya, means any kind of uncleanness, and it can be a general term. We don't even know, but understand that's not what Jesus was teaching. Let's not lose focus of what he's trying to accomplish here. Now, when we get later to Matthew chapter 19, he's going to go into more detail about divorce. And so I don't want to do a whole big deal on it right now because we'll hit it when we get to Matthew 19 in that passage where Jesus talks about why Moses gave a grant of divorce because of the hardness of people's hearts and so on. So if you're thinking about getting a divorce, at least wait till we get to Matthew 19 and maybe we'll clear it up a little bit. But remember in the Sermon on the Mount, here's what Jesus is doing. What he's saying is, You need to apply things a lot more broadly than you intended. It's not just you. It's not just about you. And whether you have grounds or not, when you go and divorce someone, he could have said, you're also divorcing your kids. You're also divorcing your friends. How many people have you seen they get a divorce, they lose their friends, their their kids are in turmoil? I mean, so many people are going to be affected is what he's really pointing out and saying, don't just think that, okay, I have a legal right to this, so I'm going to do it. We have no idea. If we will deny those promises that we made for better or for worse for richer for poorer in sickness and in health it may be more poor it may be more sick it may be more worse but if we go back on those commitments that we made those promises that we made before God for any reason it damages a lot more than just us and that's why, biblically, it says God hates divorce. He doesn't just hate it because it's wrong for a person who's involved or two people who are involved. He hates it because of the effects it has on everyone around. And it's to be avoided at all costs. It's not a question of, I'm unhappy in my marriage, so man, at the first sign of unfaithfulness, or I'm even thinking, you know, maybe I can fix my husband up with one of my friends, and if he commits adultery, I'm free, You're not free. There are so many people who have been, they think they were set free from their marriage. You don't get free from that kind of a commitment. You're going to be dragging it with you through your whole life. And everyone here who's been married more than once will tell you that, every one of them. That's not to say that sometimes the situation is so bad that it doesn't need to happen. And again, when we get to Matthew 19, we'll talk about that. But Jesus' point here is don't even go there. Don't even think about it because you're doing a lot more destruction and damage. It reaches much broader than just you and what you want to justify in your own heart. The fact is, we're all sinners. The fact is, we're all adulterers in a sense. We're all unfaithful. We're all pornaya. We're all violators. And Jesus is going, understand this, I want your heart. I want loyalty from your heart. I want to relate to you in a way that once we settle this issue, that we're all sinners. Now we can get somewhere. Now something can happen. He goes on to... And, and by the way, so that, that idea of the, that's translated commits adultery, a good translation of that word would be involves him in adultery, involves her in adultery, or actually in the middle voice there in the end of chapter 32, he involves himself in adultery. And many people have found that out. When you marry someone who's divorced... You're joining the divorce. You're becoming a party to it. You're going to be affected by it. And that's really how I think that should be translated. And a lot of experts would agree with me, but you can argue with me after church if you want. Verse 33, again, you've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform your oaths to the Lord. But I say to you, do not swear at all. Neither by heaven, for it's God's throne, nor by the earth, for it is his footstool, nor by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Nor shall you swear by your head, because you cannot make one hair white or black. But let your yes be yes, and your no, no, for whatever is more than these is from the evil one. They had a practice that they would do in those days, the the Pharisees and many of the Jewish people. And when they would tell you something, they would say, I swear this is true. And they would say, I swear on my house. And you go, well, your house? Okay, I swear on the city of Jerusalem. Um, Yeah, but, well, okay, I swear on the temple, the doors to the temple, the altar in the temple. I swear on the Holy of Holies. I swear on the Ark of the Covenant. Oh, okay, now you're really telling the truth. But they would have this hierarchy of things they would swear to, and some of them didn't mean much. It's like if somebody says, I swear on my mother's grave, and you go, wow, your mother's not even dead yet. So, okay, I put my hand on a comic book, and I'll swear, or on the TV guide, and I'll swear. But then you go, as we do in court still, in in certain places, I put my hand on the Bible, and I swear. Now it's like, okay, wait, I better think about whether or not this is really true or not, because I'm actually swearing to God. But what God is saying, what Jesus is saying here is, you shouldn't even do that. You shouldn't play that game. There shouldn't be different degrees of truthfulness. We do this in other ways, not swearing. Someone asks you something, and you can either answer in a real strong affirmative. They say, how do you like this top on me? And you can go, ah, I love it. It's great. Or you can go, it's, it's nice. And what does that mean? It means it's not nice, but I don't want to say it's ugly. And we have ways of doing it. We have ways of communicating that says, and in fact, what, the way we know this is when you ask someone their opinion about something and they say, yeah, it's great. You go, really? Well... That's not what you want to hear. But, and then there are some people who are so ridiculous about it. There's, it's the most beautiful car I've ever seen. I've always wanted. And you go, come on, you're laying it on too thick. This is ridiculous. But we set aside these different ways of communicating how truthful we really are being and how much we really mean yes or no. And we may protest loudly. We may do it with our voice. We may do it by saying, hey, I, I promise you. Or I'll give you 50 bucks if it's not true. I'm so sure of it, I'll bet you a thousand bucks. However it is, Jesus is saying, you know what? Just tell the truth. Don't sit there and color it. Don't say something that you could defend it if you had to. Don't put a spin on the truth so that, yeah, it's truth, but it's misleading. It's t- what you say to someone isn't exactly a lie, but it certainly gives them the wrong idea. It certainly does. You know? and, and so to say, for instance, you know, well, growing up, Billy Graham was one of my best friends. Now, maybe Billy Graham, the great evangelist, maybe he was one of your best friends, But maybe it was that you listened to him enough you felt like, you know, maybe you met him like me. I think I met him twice, two or three times. I can act like he's my friend. Or maybe you knew some kid named Billy Graham. It wasn't even, maybe you knew Billy Graham, the pro wrestler, and you're going, yeah, you know, Billy Graham, we're real close. But the question isn't, can I defend what I say? The question is, am I really giving people the right idea? Am I really communicating something in a way that they understand clearly? They know if I say it, it's true. That it's not with a spin on it. That it's not said in such a way to make it look a way that it really isn't. And Jesus is saying, don't do that. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. A person shouldn't have to come to us and say... Now, what did you really mean by that? Because I heard this, and it contradicts with what you're saying. And we go, well, I didn't really want to come right out and say it, so yeah, here's the real deal. And, and find out what the truth is. They should know if it's true because our lips are moving, because we're saying it. And, and that's what Jesus is saying here. Just don't play games with the truth. Just tell it. You don't need to swear when you do that. If people know that everything you say is true, you won't have to say, no, really. Because they'll already know you mean it when you say it the first time. It's kind of like when people discipline their kids by telling them no, and then they tell them no a little louder, and then they tell them no a little louder, and then the kid knows when you use their middle name, they, you really mean for them to do it. You know? It's the same kind of deal. God's going, don't do that. Let them know the first time, this is what I mean. And you don't have to question it, and you don't have to wonder whether or not I mean it. Now he goes on to say, you've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, not to resist an evil person, but whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. If anyone wants to sue you and take away your tunic, let him have your cloak also. And whoever compels you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks you, and from him who wants to borrow from you, do not turn away." boy, this is kind of a tough one. I mean, you can hang with the, okay, yeah, eye for eye, a tooth for a tooth. We don't need to do that. But it sounds like he's saying, don't even resist somebody who's slapping you around. And if somebody wants to sue you, just give them whatever they're asking for. And somebody is kidnapping you, and they take you a mile away, go, can we go a little further? <laughs> and whoever asks you, give it to them. If they want to borrow it, give it to them. And... I've had these verses quoted to me a lot of times by like bums in the church parking lot or, you know, the Bible says to give when I ask. I'm asking, are you going to give? Now, it's important for us to take this in the context of whole scripture, certainly to take this in an extreme matter and say you should, for instance, and people do the turn the other cheek thing and they believe you shouldn't ever defend yourself. As far as that goes, there are some pacifists who don't think you should ever defend anyone else either. That if somebody comes and hits you, go, here, try the other side and do it. What Jesus is dealing with is the heart. And what he is explaining is, make sure that you're willing to give in. Make sure that you're not battling for your own pride. There's too much other scripture that would contradict it for it to mean something ridiculous like, don't ever defend yourself. When Jesus was commissioning his disciples before he went, to up to heaven before he went to die. He said to them, guys, you're heading for some tough times. Now, he said, if you don't have a sword and you have two coats, sell your coat and buy a sword. He's telling his disciples to arm themselves. You ever wonder why in the garden of Gethsemane, when Peter whacked Malchus's ear off, where did he get the sword? They carried them. After Jesus told them, if you you have a coat and no sword, sell the coat and get a sword, they said, okay, we have a couple swords. Is that enough? And Jesus said, yeah, that's fine. That's enough. Well, what did they use the swords for? Cutting up the loaves and fishes? No, they used it to defend themselves. There were times when Jesus would defend himself or defend God's honor, but Here in this passage, what he's talking about isn't that you can't defend yourself, but the idea is, and he goes on to say right after this, you've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, love your enemy and bless those who curse you. See, the whole point he's saying is, don't be antagonistic toward people, don't let it get personal, and by the way, when they would slap them on the cheek, it wasn't their first shot in a fight. It was challenging someone to a fight. And he's saying, don't let somebody pick a fight with you. Get out of there. Get away from the situation. You don't need to just turn and go. But at the same time, there are situations where that's not possible. And there are situations where giving someone what they're asking for would not be the loving thing. And so we have to take the whole thing in context and understand it's not just every time someone asks you for something, you give it to them. If that was true, maybe... One of your kids would hear this message and go, you know, they're 12 years old or something, and they go, Dad, you know, I was listening to Pastor Dave about having a sword, selling your coat to get one if possible, and I'm figuring maybe a gun is more like a sword nowadays, and sometimes people hassle me on the way to school, and so could you buy me a gun? I'll start carrying it. I'll keep that Bible verse with me about the, you know, selling your coat and I'll... Would it be the loving thing if you're really gonna literally the way that people sometimes interpret this passage go, okay, if my kids ask him for a gun, if he asks you, you gotta give it to him. No, of course we know that with children. We also know it with adults, that to give someone something that isn't good for them is not a loving thing to do. To encourage someone to be a panhandler by supporting them when they don't work, the Bible says if you don't work, you don't eat. But at the same time, he's saying, in the context of loving your enemies, he's saying, don't let people bait you into a fight. Don't be looking, walking around with a chip on your shoulder. You can't wait for a chance to try out your latest karate lesson. It's not, that's not what you should be doing. The idea is you should be loving people, even who are trying to pick fights with you. You should be willing to take a, an amount of humiliation or abuse but I don't believe for a second that this means... And I've been in discussions with people about this and who, who say that if somebody breaks into your house and they're going to kidnap your kids, it would be wrong for you to fight back. Or they want to take your wife? or they want to... You know, it would be wrong for you because the Sermon on the Mount says, Oh, no, if they want it, give it to them. I'll just let you know right now. Somebody comes into my house... I'm going to give it to them. But my job of protecting my family, and it's not going to be, how dare you do this to me, and I'm shooting them on their way out the door. I, anybody who wants to steal any of my stuff, I'm not going to hurt somebody because they're stealing. Well, yeah, basically, no, <laughs> I, I, don't know, I might hurt them. I'm not going to kill them. But, the, the thing is, the whole deal is, it's not about me. It's not about something personal. And if there's a way that I can give something that I value to someone else out of love, if it's a way that it's something that's good for them, then that's what we should do. And if there's someone who is stealing something and you look at them and you just know they're desperate, it, it might be the thing to do to not defend it. To just say, go ahead. I've allowed people to hit me. And I didn't hit them back because I knew they needed to hit somebody. I've, I've stood there in front of somebody who's frustrated or angry and, and just gone, hey, if it makes you feel better, just go ahead and take a shot. And usually they laugh. Sometimes they swing. And you just go, that's okay. If I need to take that, sometimes somebody just needs to get it out of their system. They will almost always end up crying in my arms a minute later. Because they're not angry with me. They're angry at life. They're angry at some abuse that happened to them when they were a kid or something else. And and Jesus is saying here, come on. Even if someone thinks they're against you, don't let them be against you. And be considerate that maybe you'll even go further. I used to sometimes at... At Calvary, when I remember there were some people who were really arguing. They were mad about something, a teacher that their kid had. And, and so they were saying, basically, they said, you know, the school should refund my whole year's tuition because I don't feel like we got any benefit from this school at all. And I said, well, you know what? I don't feel it's right to take God's money and give it back to you. But I said, I'll tell you what, if you really feel that way, I'll write you a check right now, a personal check for your whole year's tuition several thousand dollars, and I'll sit there and I'll write the check out. I've done this several times. Unfortunately, no one ever cashed the check. But, but it, it was the idea of going, hey, if that's what you need, okay, here you go. I'm not going to fight you on that. Sometimes that's just what people need. Sometimes they just need for someone to not fight them. And we need to be sensitive to the Holy Spirit and loving people to say, in this situation, what is the most loving thing I can do? And I'm convinced there are some times that I've had to get violent with someone and that was the most loving thing that could have happened. But there are other times when that was the worst thing that I could have ever done was to take the bait, was to do that. And a whole lot of times we find ourselves somewhere in between. We find ourselves in a situation where part of us is saying, fight back, argue, make your point, win your argument. And a part of us is going, you know, I think they just need to let go right now. I think, I think I'm think, i just gonna give them what they want. And it's being sensitive to God. You still have to be a good steward. But God is probably not gonna constantly put you in a situation where this is happening. But I know in my life there have been situations where it's happened, and that's what, and he wants us to learn about that because Jesus ultimately not only taught this, but in the end, he didn't utter a word. He could have just walked through the crowd and left like he did on other occasions. He could have started beating people up like he did when he, when he cleansed the temple. And I had someone argue with me once, and they said, it doesn't say he beat people up, so it, maybe it doesn't. But he tipped over their tables. And I don't know what he did with the whip, but you don't use a whip to tip over tables. But anyway, <laughs> so Jesus, there were times when he, when he fought, But there was a time when He knew, now it's time for me to go to the cross. And now I'm going to take it. And He didn't utter a word. And only God can show you in a particular situation which response is the appropriate one. What is the loving response? We know, I think we can all agree, that sometimes the loving thing to do is to just give someone what they ask for, is to give them more than they ask for, is to not defend ourselves when we're attacked. I think most of us will acknowledge as well that there are times when it's not the most loving thing to do to let someone get away with bad behavior, to allow someone to take advantage, to abuse things that God has committed into your care and give them to someone who will squander them, give money to someone who will buy drugs with it or whatever. But in the situation, his point is, make sure that it's not about you and your honor. Make sure that it's not your flesh that's causing you to hang on to your stuff. The idea is the thing that changed your life was that while you were yet a sinner, you realized Christ died for you. It's always the goodness, the kindness of God that brings us to repentance. And if people are going to see the kindness of God, they're going to have to see it in us. And that means we need to love our enemies. That means we need to, if we respond in kind to every attack— then all we're going to do is polarize society and those people who are lost are going to be so far away from us that they'll never find Jesus. You've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemies, but I say to you, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. For he makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Don't even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet your brethren only, what do you do more than others? Do not even the tax collectors do so. Therefore, you shall be perfect just as your Father in heaven is perfect. Respond not in kind. Not an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But when you're hated, respond with love. When you're attacked, respond with love. Give God the opportunity to melt someone's heart by your demonstrating the fruit of the Spirit, by your demonstrating the Beatitudes that he's talking about earlier in the chapter. And when you do that, you look like your dad. You're sons of your father who is in heaven. And see, he makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. God gives his love to everyone. We sometimes hate that he does that. We would love to have it be that, man, when you're a good person and you follow God and you obey him and you go to church every Sunday and Wednesday night especially, then, wow, you know, God just makes your life great. And you look around and go, man, there's people that come to church on Christmas and Easter and they're better off than I am. Well, that's what God does. It's not that he withholds his good from those who love him. That's not true. He does, he is good to us. The advantage we have then isn't that he's better to us. It's that we see what he's doing for us. We appreciate it. Those who are blessed by God and think they're getting it, they're losing. But he's saying because God does it that way, you do it that way too. Don't just love the lovely. I mean, even the guys that hang out in the same bar... Like each other, hug each other. I love you, bro. You know, and it's that's nothing. If all we do is sit here in church and go, it's so neat, we're surrounded by a great group of people. And I have to tell you, I don't know of a place on this earth that has more people that I just really think are incredible people than this church. I mean, we're blessed. We're, we have an abundance of people who are amazing people to be around. And yet, if all we were supposed to do is be here loving each other, kind of that be so easy? But that's not it. He wants us to reach out to people who are unlovely as well. And if all we do is grow here and we don't reach out, then we haven't done much of anything. We haven't done much that the world doesn't do. God causes the rain to fall on the just and the unjust, and he wants us to love the just and the unjust, to be good to all of those. And, and again, wrapping up the chapter, he says, be perfect. If you haven't been thrashed enough, if you haven't felt like, man, I'm not loving the non-Christians enough and when people attack me, I fight back. When people you know, honk at me, I honk at them. I went, wow, you know what's going on? I'm not being the husband of the father I ought to be. I'm failing in every area of life. He's gone, you're getting it. You're getting it. If you're feeling convicted, good, that's the point. But if you haven't been nailed yet, The standard is perfection. Grow up like God. Be mature like He is. Be who He is. And if the sermon ended here, it would be pretty frustrating. But it doesn't. He goes on. He helps us out. But really, if it did or it didn't, we get the point. We need help. We're a mess. We can't possibly do what it takes to be a righteous person, to be a godly person. We can't possibly live the kind of life that we ought to be living. Let's pray. Lord, we know that your Holy Spirit, one of his main jobs is to convict us. And if, through reading these scriptures, we haven't all been convicted, we're worse off than I thought. Because we've all been nailed by what you've said. But we've also all been blessed by what you've done to provide a righteousness that we couldn't provide for ourselves. And we thank you that, Jesus, when you hung on that cross, And as you died and the veil was ripped in half, the righteous requirements of the law were fulfilled. And now we can come boldly before the throne of grace in fellowship with you. And the law that was fulfilled by you has been fulfilled in us. But God, as we read this Sermon on the Mount, we're also aware that you want our hearts in a special and a real and an honest way. Help us, please, to have our hearts transformed by your Spirit. That we would not just demonstrate an outer righteousness, but that there would be an inner work that we see happening that isn't us that we couldn't possibly do, that, that we see, wow, I'm still flawed, but I'm growing, good things are happening. I'm experiencing some victory and then, Lord, we will acknowledge that it's all because of you, it's never because of us. Thank you for teaching us these things as hard as they are to swallow, as difficult as they may be to understand. There's something in here for everyone. To understand that we're coming up short, help us to have a balance, to see our sin, and to see your righteousness, and realize it's finished, it's accomplished, you've done it. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Let's all stand. If you'd like some prayer after the service, maybe the Lord's just working in an area of your heart and you'd like somebody to, to just pray with you for a couple minutes, um, the prayer room will be open over between those doors and, and there are people who'd just love to share with you and, and comfort you and to let you know that, yeah, it's true, we're all like this. We all need help. And you've come to the right place to get it. So if you're at all struggling in an area of your life and not at peace tonight, Um, or there's something that was confusing about what was said, just take a few minutes to go over there and let some people minister to you. They'd love to do it. And I promise you, I've never yet had someone go to the prayer room and come away saying, I probably shouldn't have done that. It's always great to unload, to offload, to download. And so do that before you leave. God bless you.